You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The coronavirus is a national emergency unlike anything we have seen in modern times. As of this recording, on March 30th, it is estimated that over 155,000 Americans have contracted the coronavirus, and there have been over 2,800 deaths. However, by the time you listen to this episode, these statistics will be out of date. The National Center for State Courts reports on their Pandemic Preparedness webpage, which I highly recommend, that 41 states now have coronavirus informational webpages. Because of the crisis, we are suspending our normal podcast schedule, and we are going to weekly podcasts focusing on how courts and court administrators are dealing with the coronavirus. On today's podcast, we have Zanelle Brown, Executive Court Administrator in Detroit, Michigan, Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator in Daytona Beach, Florida, Angie Van Skoik, Court Administrator in Breckenridge, Colorado, Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator in Eugene, Oregon, T.J. Bement, Court Administrator in Athens, Georgia, and Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. T.J., let me start with you. What has been the biggest challenge your court has faced this last week involving the coronavirus? Thank you, Peter. I would say this biggest issue in this last week has been trying to figure out what the new normal is. I'm sure like most of you all there, the initial reaction was shut down operations to just the minimal that's essential. So very quickly, we canceled jury trials. We started canceling civil issues. But then it was, what do we need to focus on and what does that look like? How many people do we need for different events and different types of hearings, criminal bond hearings and whatnot? So it's really sort of a reshuffling and a focus on just those essential operations and trying to get the basic work done. Liz Rambo, what's been your court's biggest challenge this week? Well, there's been so many, but I think adding on what TJ just said, once we figured out what the new normal is, then trying to figure out how to do the new normal has been the biggest challenge, I think, for us. We have technology resources, and we have a chief justice order that directs us to conduct as much as possible via remote proceedings, but we don't have those technology resources deployed for remote proceedings. So how to get all of those extra laptops, phones, video and teleconferencing services and everything deployed with the same level of technology staff that we always have just running around solving problems has been a huge challenge. Do you have any solutions yet? We are triaging, actually, based on the chief justice order, what things are the most important to be done first remotely, and then just working our way out from there. But there are lots of demands, and we've had to be very clear in communication with judges and our business partners about exactly what we can get remote and when we can get it remote. Zanel, how about your court? What's been its biggest challenge? So this is week three for us dealing with the um, state of emergencies and closing down and trying to figure out what's really important, what has to happen, what can happen remotely. And I think the the biggest thing this week that had come about is that we had a, a local public health order where we had to start screening employees 
So putting in a system where we could actually do that before the employee reports to work and then working with our community partners and others who work in the courthouse to make sure that that occurs. And then when we find out someone has been um, diagnosed, making sure that that communication goes out and trying to follow up, especially when it's not one of our employees, to make sure that the appropriate protocols have been followed as well. So a lot of different things in a lot of different areas, just to echo what Liz and TJ were sharing. What is the screening composed of? There's three questions. The first one, they're asking about your symptoms. Do you, have you had cough, dry cough? I can't remember the other physical symptoms, but these symptoms, have you had any domestic or international travel by plane in the last 14 days? And then have you been in close proximity with anyone who has been diagnosed within the last 14 days? And if you answer yes to any of those things at this point, we're told that if you're even assigned for essential services, do not report to work. So each day, our essential service staff has to complete that survey. And they get like a thumbs up, a green thumbs up if, they're, if they can report to work that day. And if it's a, a thumbs down or a red signal, they're told to contact HR. So our HR department can determine, okay, is this person appropriate to be quarantined? And if the person's exhibiting symptoms but not diagnosed, part of the public health order is that the person must be self-quarantined for seven days. Have any of your employees contracted the coronavirus? We have. I think in our, in our immediate, it's about two. As far as our partners who we work in, we're like in double digits, probably close to about 40 about now. And so it's really impacted about what we can do even during this time of essential services. And oh, some, some people we have even, um, a lot, some of who are retirees have passed away from it even. So oh. we are feeling the immediate impacts of it. Well, we will definitely keep all of the folks in your court in our thoughts and prayers. Thank you so much. Mark, how are staff in your court holding up during the crisis? How is their morale? Uh, morale is good. It should come as no surprise to any of us that when faced with this situation, everyone stepped up to the plate and have asked, how can I help? I, I think the thing we're going to have to guard against long term is the fatigue associated with people performing these mission essential duties the longer this goes on. Angie, how about your court? Uh, since I'm kind of a, a single woman show, I'm holding up well, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> My biggest challenge has been just maintaining like professional demeanor because my five-year-old's also not in school, so she seems to have this sixth sense that I'm needing to do something or I'm on a conference call or something, and then everything she requires has to happen right then. Um, but beyond that, there's a lot of just trying to figure out, you know, how to do the cases because we had three court dates scheduled for April. Um, I had the judge issue a standing order to reset all of them to late June and July, but I'm still having to enter anything that PD actually writes tickets for and you know print off things. So occasionally I have to go into the office uh, to get um, stuff off the printer and put those cases together since we still run on a paper system. So that's kind of gets to be a challenge and kind of frustrating at times because I'm having to schlep stuff back and forth constantly to get those things taken care of. Did you have to send out written notices to all of the defendants resetting their cases? 
I did, and I actually found a place in Arizona that I just created a letter and said, can you please send this form letter to all these people? Because being a resort, we do lots of ski pass violations. And I think for each docket I had in April, there was at least 200 people on the docket. So I sent out about 600 letters, letting them know that they can either do plea by mail and have it taken care of or that they're reset to June or July. Rick, how's the staff in the Pennsylvania courts doing? Well, Pete, Speaking on uh, in regards to the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, I think the, the morale has been good, at least in the short term here. The impact has been varied across the Commonwealth. The cases first started to appear in the southeastern part of the state, and those courts began to experience disruptions and closures nearly three weeks ago. Uh, the rest of the Commonwealth has just started to experience the impact of COVID-19 within the last week to week and a half. Uh, they all have weighed in, and the Supreme Court has closed all the facilities to the public and limited to primary essential functions for, for court proceedings. Staff itself is, is holding up fairly well, though, and, and that's a good sign. Sunil. How helpful has your continuity of operations plan been when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus? Well, before we even got really hit with that, I looked at the plans, and the thing that I was taking away from it is that we were looking at where would we go if this building wasn't available. And the situation that we have is none of our buildings are really available. So what do you do there? And I think the critical piece that has helped guide us through is like, how does the communication look? So that piece in the plan was very firm and solid and provided a foundation in which to build upon. So it was very helpful in that in that respect. TJ, what is the one thing that you would add to your continuity of operations plan, knowing what you know now about the coronavirus? Well, first I would start by saying I wish we had actually completed it. <laughs> I'm sure like many courts, we had a coop that had portions of it complete. Uh, and I'm using the example of one of my counties. They had worked on it several years ago. All the initial piece was there, sort of identified all the different sort of functions, but then it stopped. It didn't get completed to actually say, okay, who are the staff that are responsible for these different functions? And what do you do in the event that this courtroom is unavailable or that courtroom is unavailable? Luckily, we've been able to fall back on a statewide COOP plan that was done for our courts way back in 2008, actually on pandemic planning, and that has provided the basis by which most of our courts are operating in the state to sort of identify those essential operations and to figure out what they need to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis along with some sample court orders. So luckily we had that to fall back on, but I think it really emphasizes the point that there's a reason we talk about COOP in the days when we're not dealing with a crisis so that when we need it, it's there and can quickly be done. And that's why we do the tabletop exercises and think through contingencies during that planning, so that when we don't have the time to do that additional thinking in the moment of the crisis, that we can just act. So right now we're just acting and doing the best that we can in certain circumstances because we didn't have that fully fleshed out uh, coup plan. Mark, how about your court? Well, be, being here in Florida, we've had to operationalize our COOP plan a, a number of times. But like someone else had mentioned, ours was focused primarily on restoring operations 
in the short term, particularly in buildings that may have been damaged by a storm. We'll obviously, uh, after this is said and done, go back and have to add a section addressing issues similar to what we're facing now. Although it is still early in dealing with this crisis, what is the one biggest lesson that you have learned so far? Zanel? Oh, that's a hard one, Peter. The availability of technology was key, but it was also like a, a hassle to really get everybody up and familiar with it. So doing more regarding that, making sure we're more on top of making sure there's enough equipment and people are able to use it quickly and easily. And then after that, I'm going to have to go with communication. Like I said, we have a Department of Health order and really finding out how all those pieces fit together and then talking to all of our justice partners in the buildings and making sure that they're letting us know when someone's been diagnosed on their side, we're letting them know, making sure that we're letting the building know. It's just a lot of communication and trying to manage that has been like the biggest lesson learned. Make sure everybody's kept in the loop and even staff, they want updates. Some things may not even pertain to them directly, but if an, an officer has been diagnosed, they want to know that that officer has been diagnosed so they can rule out, hey, it doesn't pertain to me. So communications is the big one. And I think that's just a universal lesson on mostly everything we do as leaders and managers, but it's really coming home right now. Rick? Well, we think one of the lessons we have learned is really how courts can hold proceedings when all participants are joining into the proceeding remotely, that no one is at a court facility because it has closed to all staff, even essential staff. So in, in particular, it's the manner of capturing the record, storing and preserving the record, and making sure that actually everyone that is in the proceeding and participating in the proceeding can hear and understand everything that's being said. Case in point, we are re-recording my portion of this podcast because of the fact that I participated on the podcast on a cell phone that had poor reception and would not be understood by everyone. So this is a key point that we are still grappling with in, in the Commonwealth in various pockets of the Commonwealth. There are some courts that are well-equipped and have the resources available to capture the record and preserve it and, and are very comfortable with that. And others are still discovering those remote means of communication. Angie? I think the biggest thing is just that having a coop is something you need to have. We don't have one. Um, there was nothing in place for what we were going to do for anything. So, you know, it was kind of like a free-for-all. And, you know, IT realized that they didn't have enough laptops to give to everybody that needed to work from home. So it's like, how are they going to do that? Unfortunately, we have our house wired so I can connect the Ethernet right into the wall and be up and running with my desktop computer so they didn't have to give me a laptop. But it was kind of like this chaotic Friday, the, the Friday before they send us all home in terms of like, well, who gets a laptop and who doesn't? And how are the people that really need one going to do their job without having that capability and not having that in place really made it harder for IT and everybody in town hall to be able to get it kind of figured out. So it was, that was really frustrating, but at the same time, it was kind of like, I 
had a feeling that was going to happen. So I had everything kind of set up with my computer and said, hey, I can connect to my house and actually still work. You know, all you have to do is do these things on my desktop and then I can get in and you know, still do my job. And so just having a place, you know, some kind of plan in place for myself, I think was really helpful. And then I could help everybody else because I wasn't stressed out about how I was going to, to work from home because I kind of had that figured out. TJ? Well, I'd have to actually mention too, and I, I'm echoing what others have said about technology and this very, very fast deployment and high utilization of technology, whether it's just laptops or video conferencing, teleworking, all that. I think the big issue and lesson learned there is the need for protocols. We've had all these things. We just haven't really thought through what are the protocols of who gets priority for use of equipment? What do you need to have access to at a minimal to do your job, your specific function. So really talking through a lot of that and, and identifying those protocols all the way down to how do you actually host a video conference and should the court be the one who initiates the call and the one that hits record or doesn't hit record and how many people do you need to see on the screen at one time? All things that seem commonplace but really need some protocol around it because ultimately there's gonna be some legal challenges down the road. And lastly, I'd like to make the point on the importance of leadership during this time. In our state, the ability to, to call a quarantine or to shut a courthouse and things like that often comes down, or really statutorily comes down to our superior court judges, which are our general jurisdiction judge and the chief of each one of those circuits. A lot of them have sort of at the beginning took a step back and said, I'm not really willing to be the one that's going to restrict and, and curtail these operations until our chief justice, who has concurrent jurisdiction to do it on a statewide basis, went ahead and pulled the trigger on that and issued a statewide judicial emergency through mid-April at this point. So I have to really say my hat is off to our chief justice for willing to take in a very non-unified, very locally-centric state mm -hmm. like ours to make that case to say, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do and it needs to be done now. And now weekly, our state judicial council is having calls with representatives from all our different classes of courts talking through the issues and trying to get on the same page. Well, what are you doing over here? Okay, that's a good idea. Let's push that out as a best practice. So it really comes down to that communication and leadership, both at a local level and a statewide level, that everybody's really working together. And I have to say, I've seen a lot of people come together in this like I have never seen before. People aren't taking sides. People aren't saying, that's my idea. That's your idea. I think really folks are stepping up and saying, this affects all of us. And let's just figure out the best way to, to work through this. So I'm, I'm really proud of our court staff and our court administrators and our judges out there for, for really leaning on one another through this crisis. Liz? Well, I've learned all of the ones that everyone else already talked about, obviously. Um, there's been a huge learning curve and a, and a huge workload uh, for those of us in administrative jobs, especially trying to do all the communication and deployment and absorbing chief justice orders for closure or restrictions like we have here in Oregon, all of that. So to add on what everybody is saying, I guess for me, a big lesson has been uh, in gratitude for all the coordination that we have here in Oregon and for our Chief Justice and the work that our state court administrator has done through all of this, but not just through all of this, also before. I mean, I'm grateful uh, for all of the effort that was taken 
every year in, in business continuation planning. I mean, we're we're required as administrators in Oregon to regularly update our business continuation plans. And I have to tell you, it's work I go into kicking and screaming. It's not my favorite thing. I, I don't like inventorying germicidal supplies and all of the stuff that we started doing after the H1N1 thing back in 2009. But I'm awfully grateful we do that now. And I think I'll approach it with renewed enthusiasm in the future. So there you go. Mark? Well, I have to start by echoing the uh, comments from the other folks on the call, our chief justice, state court administrator, as well as the chief judges and court administrators of each of the 20 judicial circuits here in Florida really work well together. One of the things that I've noticed as we talk about the deployment of laptops and people working from home and doing proceedings by video as much as we can in all this remote, which really come to bear on us is our uh, lack of bandwidth to accommodate all of that. And that's something we're struggling with, but addressing at the same time today. Uh, One of the other things that comes to mind is uh, the key of flexibility. Just when we think we have a handle on this, something else comes up and uh, we have to rethink of what we're doing. So uh, flexibility has really been important to us. I completely agree. This is Liz. Mark, last weekend, I adopted a a strategy of, well, now that happened. (laughs) (laughs) And and what Mark and Liz are both saying, that's absolutely correct. The one thing with our plans, the plans sometimes can get pretty useless after a very short period of time, but the planning process is absolutely invaluable. I want to thank Zanel, Liz, Angie, TJ, Mark, and Rick today for sharing their court's experiences with the coronavirus. I also want to thank all the court professionals who are continuing to go to work every day and keep the courts running in the face of this crisis. Join us next Thursday as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at CLA podcast, that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future podcast. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is clapodcast, that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, Have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.